Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. This is the first episode in a week of shows about React, and my guest is Michael Jackson. He's the creator of React Router and founder of React.js Training. Why is React so important? Uh, so it's it's really interesting, actually, how um, how mu- just how much I'm into React these days. I I, I think it was funny about. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I used to be very, very skeptic of people who would, you know, kind of tout their framework above all the others, whether it was Angular or Ember. Um, I used to do a lot of Moo tools back in the day, and I remember the jQuery guys coming onto our forum and telling us, you know, how how they could do things a lot more quickly and efficiently with jQuery. And, uh, and, and so I, I just kind of had this bad taste in my mouth for uh, all of these people who, who kind of you know, made it their job to like, you know, talk about or build or participate in, you know, a certain JavaScript framework because I had I just kind of built up this skepticism and, and, and I kind of thought, you know, all these frameworks more or less kind of do the same thing. Um, you know, that more or less I, I basically go and I, I run it in a, in a browser and I go and I grab some DOM elements and I manipulate them somehow um, and maybe they give me some tools to sort of reason about, you know, data flow or, you know, two-way data bindings or something like that. Um, but, but for years and years, that was kind of the, the way that we, uh, the way that we, that we built things and the way that, uh, you know, the way that a lot of these, these frameworks were structured. So have you become an evangelist for React? <laughs> yeah, well, have you become that so, so, version that you were so afraid yeah, of? Yeah, so I was getting, I was getting to that. I, I have actually. I'm, I'm ashamed to say I have, <laughs> I have devolved into this React uh, lemming, and I just follow, follow it around wherever it goes. Now, no, I, 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 the thing that really, really gets me excited about React is that it actually does give me something new, something that I did not have before. Um, which is, you know, this idea that I can just, basically I can just sort of throw a bunch of data at it. Um, and it doesn't matter if, you know, I have new objects or new arrays or whatever. I can just sort of throw this data at React, and then React is going to emit some DOM, and then React is going to manage all of the updates to the DOM for me. Um, and we could definitely get into sort of more detail about what exactly I mean by that, but but I, I, in short, sure, I, 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 sure, we will. Yeah. So you, 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 you came to React from Ember JS. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know to what degree you were an acolyte of Ember JS, but what are the most notable differences between React and Ember, and what uh, maybe kept you from becoming the uh, evangelist of Ember to the degree that you've become with React? Uh, well, so I, I'd actually, you know, I'd, I'd given a couple of conference talks on, on Ember. I, I spoke at FluentConf, I think it might have been uh, 2013 or maybe 2012. It wasn't very long ago that I, that I you know, would stand up and, and speak about Ember. And I, at the time, I was, I was building an application. I was building a, a chat application. Um, and this is this was kind of the use case that convinced me that I was I was doing things wrong. Um, so you know you're building a chat application and you get sort of new new messages from from the server, right? Um, and you've got this big array of them, and uh, and now you need to figure out how to generate DOM from these messages. Well, you know when I was using uh, when I was using Ember, um, I basically was observing the array. 
um, they have this idea in uh, in Ember, um, and, and it's really a, a pretty old idea that goes a lot, you know, way back to sort of Mac OS X programming uh, paradigms. It's it's uh, abbreviated KVO or key value observing. So basically, you you take a look at an object like an array, uh, and then you say, okay, whenever this object changes, whenever something about this object changes, do something as a result. Um, and you know the, the the same idea is present like in a framework like Angular where they they do like dirty checking on the objects um, that you know your model objects. Basically, the idea is let's watch our data, and whenever our data changes, we will assume that the user interface is going to change. Um, and it's 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 the same idea behind uh, the object dot observe API that uh, that is making its way into into JavaScript nowadays. Um, and so basically what I would do is I would, you know, I was building this chat app and I would observe this list of messages and whenever it changed, whenever something was added, um, then I would have to go and sort of figure out, okay, which index changed, maybe the messages would come in out of order, okay, which ones are new, okay, now which DOM elements do I have and how do I, you know, reflect the change in that array to the change in the DOM without you know, disturbing the rest of the elements that are already in the DOM, which may not have actually changed because they still have the same data. And, you know, it, it felt like I was, I was doing things the wrong way. I, I remember the first time that I actually got a hold of React and I, and I decided to approach this exact same problem, and it hit me like a revelation that React didn't actually care that I was giving it a new array. In other words, React is not trying to observe the array or the or changes to the array or changes to that object all react cares about is whether or not the virtual dom that i emit is different right so so for example you could say um, you could you could treat this just like a like a function imagine you're you're just unit testing a function um, and your function is called you know add and it adds two numbers together well you know if you pass add 4 and 4 and the result that you get back is eight. Well, React uh, only cares about the results. So if, Re if, you were, if you were doing a unit test on one of your React components, it cares about the resulting DOM. Well, uh, you know, if you're using a key value observing approach, you would assume that calling my function with five and three means that I now have different UI. Because instead of observing the output, Instead of observing like what actual changes need to happen in the in the document or in the user interface, I'm now observing um, you know the inputs to my function, and I assume because the inputs right. are different that the output's going to be different. Um, and and in in yes. that process, that 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 now puts the onus on me. It's my responsibility now to make sure that operations are efficient, and the framework isn't actually helping me anymore at that point. Does that make sense? So I love I love that description of the separation of concerns. Um, so I'd like to get into React Router, but before we get totally. into the the React Router that you built specifically, I'd like to ease into our conversation with some broad discussion around routers and what a router is and why you need a router in a web framework. Could you start by defining what a route is and what a router is? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so a route, uh, in uh, well, at least in, in, in my opinion of it, is, a route is uh, a, a page. Um, you could think of a route as uh, basically just that—a web page. Um, and you know, on any given 
page, you've got a bunch of a bunch of UI, a bunch of boxes, really, just sort of nested inside one another, um, and and that's that's what a route is, and and then the router, um, it's the router's job to, you know, given given a URL, uh, to determine which route should be displayed on the page. Um, so it's it's you know it's it's this idea of routers has existed for a long long time on the server, you know, whenever you go into your your Nginx config or your Apache config or even, you know, your Rails controllers and, you know, kind of the modern sort of PHP frameworks. And they have these server-side routers that determine, okay, when an HTTP request comes in, how do we render the page? Um, right. And you've talked about how in the evolution of browsers, there was this point in time where the the routers that we developed, they worked in such a way that the back and forward button wouldn't work reliably for our web pages. So if you think of like Gmail yeah. and you're like navigating in Gmail and you're like clicking on an email and you click the back button and it like doesn't do the thing that you expect. Yeah. And uh, and in the talks where you've articulated this, I'm like, yes, that absolutely resonates with me. So what caused this this point in time where back and forward did not work reliably? Well, so essentially what, what happened is, you know, client-side technologies, uh, you know, matured a lot. And so we started building more and more JavaScript-heavy apps on the front end. Um, and what would happen is, you know, somebody would click in a certain place and cause the UI to change, or they would submit a form, or they would scroll, or they would do some sort of action that caused the UI to change. And then they would not propagate that change in a meaningful way back to the URL. So the page looked different as a result of them clicking somewhere or doing something. But the URL didn't actually change to reflect that the page had changed. So, so then, you know, if you click the, the back button um, and you hadn't actually inserted a new entry into the browser history, you would assume that you would go back to the previous UI that you were looking at. Um, but as far as the browser is concerned, you know, before you made that change, whatever, before, but as far as the browser is concerned, the last page that it knows about might have been the last site that you visited. So instead of just going back to the last UI that you were looking at on the site that you're currently on, uh, you might actually be taken completely out of that site to a, to another site entirely. And and you know a lot of really modern web apps still still do not have good support for URLs in the browser. Um, you know, they, I, I was using you know Amazon Web Services the other day, and I think it was their S3 browser, and the the back and forward buttons are busted. Um, so it's still something that we're we're learning how to do effectively. Yeah, and you've said that you should make the URL your first thought, not an afterthought. Absolutely. Why is it important to think of URLs as part of your design process? Well, it, you really, really have a really powerful tool when you have URLs. So, so instead of just uh, describing to you, sort of in words or pictures. Uh, you know what a page looks like. What a, what route we're at. I now actually have a string of data, a serializable string of data that I can give you, and I can say, "Look, uh, what route are we at? Here, here's the route that we're at." Um, and if if I have good URLs, um, you know, search engines are are more friendly to my content. Um, I can copy and paste them. I can I can put them in an email. I can put them in an IM message to somebody. Um, and so, you know, you, you actually gain a really, really powerful tool. Now, today we're actually, you know, we, we've talked so far about 
just implementing this in browsers, right? But then a tool like React Native comes along, right, and gives us the ability to now we're rendering, you know, native UI with JavaScript, um, and and we're we're actually thinking, you know, maybe we can reuse this concept in in native applications. So this will resonate with anybody who's ever who's ever developed a, a sort of native app. Let's say you've got a you know an iPhone app or a, or an Android app. And you've tried to sort of record the state that the user was at when you know they closed the app or or they they otherwise you know maybe they the app was the app uh, went to sleep for some reason and 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 it, and it shut down. So now when the user comes back to the app, how do you restore that state? Right? Do you do you have some sort of your own mechanism for sort of encoding all of that state? Um, well, the web already gave us a really really good one, which is a URL. So we're actually so that's that's so fascinating. Is that is that what we're actually doing with React Native? Are we porting yes. the idea of the URL to native? Well, applications? so React Native itself is not um, React Native. Just gives us React, but with native views. But with the router, uh, with the React router running on a React Native app, um, we can do that because we just use that same primitive, which is. A URL, um, and now our URL can describe a web page in a web app, or it can describe you know a set of nested views in a native app, just the same way. So that's fascinating. Let's zoom back and talk about what is the React Router. So React Router is uh, you know I mentioned that we've we've talked about Ember. Um, Ember really had a, this this great concept of of a router. Um, and by the way, I'm not the only person who's worked on it. There have been lots and lots of people. Uh, my the main other uh, author of it, in fact, the original author of it, his name is Ryan Florence. Uh, he has at least ten commits in there, I think, before I I started doing anything with it. But uh, but anyway, he he and I were both coming from Ember at the time, and we uh, we we really really missed the Ember router. Um, the fact was that when you were building an Ember app, it was very, very easy to go ahead and take a look at the URL, and then you could know immediately which uh, controllers were, act were active uh, given that URL. Um, so it, it made lots of things really nice. You know, For example, you're debugging, you see a bug on the page. Well, what's the URL? Oh, the URL is this. Well, now I know exactly where to go to look and, and, you know, to try and find the bug and to see what's going on at that URL on that, on that page. Um, and so when we came to React, we, we really loved uh, this, this model that React gave us for describing the view layer, um, but we didn't have a router. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to build full page apps in React and not just, you know, widgets or views here and there. So we wanted to have, you know, the back and forward buttons work. We wanted to be able to, to describe an entire component hierarchy uh, you know, and, and, and have good URLs for it. So that's kind of where the project originated. We, I think we made the first commits back in May of uh, last year. And uh, right now, actually, just last weekend, we released uh, the very first release candidate of our 1.0 uh, release that we're, we're making a push for right now. And that will probably be um, finalized uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. So, um, can, can you describe the, the difference of exper the, the experiential difference between building an application with the router mm -hmm. and building one without it? I mean, what, it, what to build an actual application using React, 
what did you need before you had the router and how does the router change things? So we actually have a, a, a really interesting um, guide. Uh, there's there's some some uh, some docs that that Ryan actually wrote um, for the router. Um, there's this there's this one doc called the the introduction. I'll I'll put a link to it in the in the show notes. But um, basically, the idea in that document is let's build an app without React Router, and then let's build an app with it and see what we get. Um, and you 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 know be, be, before you, or if you're not using React Router, you basically end up um, building your own sort of homebrewed router. Um, you you have some sort of mechanism for you know um, figuring out what's getting rendered to the page. Um, you have you know some other sort of mechanism for you know navigating around. Um, React Router really just sort of encapsulates all of this in, in a clean way and gives you hooks at the you know the times that you need. So you have hooks, for example, when you enter a router, when you leave a route. Um, you also can transparently have support for multiple different URL schemes. So you know modern browsers support HTML5 history, which is great, but IE9 and less uh, don't actually. So you know, for a long time, website authors were sort of faking this functionality using the hash portion of the URL. Um, and with React Router, it's really just a configuration option. You just say, okay, I'm using hash URLs. Okay, we don't need to support IE9 less anymore. Now we're using real HTML5 uh, URLs. Um, so, you know, just a level, just a level of abstraction among those things that sort of encapsulates them neatly. So when I think about most React components, I'm thinking of user interfaces because this yep. is how I see React marketed. It's like this is a thing for building user interfaces. Don't get confused. It's not for building anything else. But you have built, well, you've contributed to React Router, and React Router is not a visual component. It's not something I think of as you know the user is seeing this router. And yet, if you look at the code, it looks like a component. So is... Is the React Router an example of a movement towards a entire style of programming? Is there some like component-oriented programming yeah. where we're just building React components and communicating between them, and some of them happen to be UI elements, or or am I missing something? No, no, no. You're actually catching on to it really well. Um, so, so yeah, you're right. That there's not a sort of a component in the page that you can look to, or rather, a rendered piece of the user interface, a div that you can look to and say that is the router div, right? Um, you know, but 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 it, the the idea is that uh, it, it's participating in the user interface, but it's not really rendering anything in in and of itself. It's just rendering the components that you give it. Um, you know what? What is kind of another um, really interesting uh, movement here, and we talk about this component a lot in our, our advanced training. Um, I, you might be familiar with so one of the other popular React libraries that's come out recently is is called React Motion, um, and there's this Spring component in the React Motion library, and again, it it's not really something that you actually render to the page that you actually say you know here is a div that the Spring component rendered. Um, rather, the the the, uh, the the behavior of the spring component is simply to perform some animation, and then it gives you back you know an animated value that you can insert into you know your inline styles of your element or whatever, uh, so that you can you know give it give it the sort of effect of animating back and forth. 
that now the power in uh, the the real power in doing things this way is that now we've we're making the move from building our user interfaces imperatively to building them declaratively, um, and that's a really really significant uh, shift. I think I don't have to sort of go and and hunt down. Um, you know, uh, um, it, it's especially helpful for debugging. For example, if I'm debugging imperative code, um, I have to figure out where the method was called. Uh, imperatively, um, but if I if I learn how to model things uh, sort of in a, in a declarative way, um, I, I I am now calling into those components. Uh, for example, when you're when you're building a React router uh, application, uh, the main piece of state that we pass around is called the location, right? It's it's analogous to like window location. So you essentially give a router a location. Hey router, here's where we are. Here's what the URL looks like, and Here's you know how we got here, um, and then the router uh, you know reacts to the fact that the location has now changed. Um, but I never actually tell the router, "Hey router, change the location." Right? The router is, I mean, that React really is is an apt name. The router is just reacting to the fact that the location has changed somewhere else, um, and it actually makes. Yeah, it, it models things so much more. Th- this comes back to the to the idea that that uh, a, a React component describes the component at any state in yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So our router component just describes what the page looks like given a location. Right. So React has a design pattern or an architecture associated with it called Flux. Can you define the Flux architecture and how the React router fits into the Flux architecture? Yeah, sure. So, so the Flux architecture is—it's um, not—it's not actually part. I mean, you could totally use React without Flux. Um, it's just an architecture that that helps you to kind of think about how data flows around in your application. Um, so, if you go back and you watch the original kind of—I uh, think it was the F8 conference where uh, Jing Chen and uh, uh, Pete Hunt were talking about. You know they were they were kind of introducing this idea of flux. Um, they were basically talking about how two-way binding made it difficult for them to reason about how data was flowing in their application. So somebody would you know click a button way over here, and then it would cause a change way over there, and and it was very difficult to sort of track how this change you know propagated throughout the application, or how how one how a change in one spot affected change in in another spot of the application. And so the idea was. Um, you know the idea with Flux was we'll we'll give you a, a dispatcher object, and the the Flux library has actually got a few different objects in it. But uh, nowadays, but originally when they when they released it, that was the only thing that they actually gave you was you know you would you would npm install Flux and you would have a dispatcher, and the dispatcher was basically a way um, the dispatcher is is kind of like your traffic cop uh, standing in the in the middle of the intersection, and you know as different cars want to go through. Um, he's, you know, saying which ones can and, 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 and sort of controlling the flow of the traffic. Um, so, you know, the dispatcher would only allow one action to go through and, and change the state of your application at a time. Um, so one thing that it would prevent you from doing, for example, is, you know, having cascading updates. Um, you can only, you know, make, the, make one change to the state of your application at a time. Um, so it's, you know, how that relates to the router... Uh, is it, they're they're kind of related, but they're also kind of separate. Um, 
you know, they're related in, in so much as you can use Flux to sort of organize the way that data flows into your React application. Um, and lots of times you, you know, you need data at a, at a specific route. Uh, it's an area of active research and development. We're still not entirely there. We do have some good, um, we do have really, really good support actually for Flux architectures in the 1.0 release that I mentioned uh, earlier that we're working on right now. Um, but for okay, so it sounds like these are these are t- sort of orthogonal concepts. Yeah, little, um, yeah. But I th- I think I think one thing I have heard associated uh, I think you you mentioned this uh, in one of your router talks, unless I'm mistaken. And I think I also heard this mentioned somewhere in a Flux uh, conversation. But how does React epitomize functional reactive programming? Yeah, so I'm I'm I am. Uh... <laughs> I, I, You're the wrong I guy. Far, <laughs> I am far from your FP expert. I, uh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of like a kid walking wide-eyed through the through the FP, you know, candy store right now. Um, right. So me yeah. too. So like, I'm totally in the like absolutely naive camp. So that was like a pretty hail mary question. So if you have no idea, <laughs> well, then, well, then I can totally just like skip that. Yeah. yeah. So well, so the the idea I think generally is that you know instead of modeling changes to state using objects which kind of hide the state you know kind of tucked away as instance properties and things like that now instead of uh, modeling our, our applications like that now we just model uh, model changes to state as functions on that state um, so one one library that's actually been really helpful for me in, in digging further into functional programming uh, which was inspired by the elm pro- programming language actually is, is called redux um, and it's it's one of the libraries that we actually uh, maintain as part of the Racked uh, GitHub org- organization that, that the router is also a part of. Um, and Redux basically takes state and then it models all changes to that state as just a reducer. So, uh, you know, a reducer over what? Well, the, the memo argument is basically, you know, the last state that I had. And then the, you know, the argument to my reducer is a change to that state. Um, and so if I can model all changes to the state of my application, just using this this reducer, well, now I, the state only ever lives in one place, um, and it, it becomes a little bit easier for me to, you know, sort of not keep the state, you know, sprinkled around in my entire component hierarchy, and sort of keep it in one place. But I, I think that, golly, in in general, I, just the changes that I've seen in just sort of, you know, shifting the way that I think about structuring things from, you know, let's use fewer objects here, and let's use let's use more just sort of functions over primitives. Um, less complex objects, rather more more primitive objects, and more just sort of functional transformations over those objects. Um, it really has opened up uh, just a lot, a lot of uh, just possibilities. Uh, if if you if you want an example, one really really concrete example, and you can crack open the code and you can look at it, is in React Router zero point thirteen. We had this massive. Um, sort of subclass, you know, this class hierarchy, you know, doing tra- doing things that sort of traditional OO way with inheritance and super, et cetera. And we had this, this big class hierarchy for these history objects. I told you earlier that we support, you know, both hash history and HTML5 history, and, and we even want to support, like, native history and memory history. So anyway, we had all these different types of histories, and the OO programmer looks at that problem and thinks subclasses. That's the way, right? Because... These are all different types of the same sort of base class. So I'll have a base class called history, and then I'll have a subclass for DOM history, 
you know, histories that are supposed to run in the browsers. And then I'll have another subclass for, you know, histories that are supposed to run on native devices. And then they'll each have their subclasses. Um, and this is basically how we had modeled the problem. Um, and for me, uh, you know, call me naive or maybe I, maybe I, you know, went to the wrong computer science program or something, but it, it, it ended up being a total, total mess. We had supers all over the place. We had like, you know, pseudo private methods using these sort of, you know, underscore, you know, um, constructs where, you know, it's not really private, but Hey, you really, you really shouldn't be calling that. Um, and I, I just got sick of it. I, I just absolutely got sick of it. And a lot of people who were, who were helping us with the router were like, like, I mean, everybody would look at that section of the code and just be like, this is like, there's gotta be a better way. Uh, and so one day I just, I said, I, I sat down and I, and I said, okay, what would this look like if we had no classes? Um, uh, because essentially what, what this is, is this, this is a problem that's, you know, we could model this with just functions. We've got a location, which is, you know, a URL. This is where we are. And now it's changed because the back button was hit or the forward button was hit or a link was clicked or whatever. But it's now changed. And so we now need to go through this functional transformation and get the next location. You know, whether we've got a redirect in there or whatever. So it should be a pretty easy problem to model um, using that. And um, and so we, I wrote this history library, which you can uh, you can just npm install history, and you'll get it. Uh, uh, a friend of mine um, uh, was was kind enough to actually give us the the npm package name. Um, but anyway, da Daniel Shaw. But anyway, uh, you can if you compare those two code bases, you'll you'll see very very clearly they do the exact same thing. In one, we went from this class based OO sort of approach, and in the other one, we went when this purely functional approach uh, and the functional approach is strictly more powerful it is cleaner uh, it is leaner it has helped us to find you know a lot of different kinds of of bugs um, I don't I don't I'm not exposing any methods you know as you know using this underscore sort of construct um, you know to, that that I don't actually want to be exposed like the pseudo private methods um, it's it's strictly more powerful uh, than than you know the class based approach was for us and and again this has nothing to do with React but I think that React as you know a functional sort of as bringing this functional paradigm to building UI I think is in, is definitely encouraged you know things like the Redux library things like the history library and, and lots of others sort of the same well thing. so I mean this is this is anecdotal yeah. but I feel like everybody I've talked to who is uh, an experienced programmer. Yeah. Who has some idea what a functional language is or has experience with functional languages, they take every opportunity to use functional languages. So I don't know if it's like a hard and fast uh, rule that you should opt to use functional languages if you can, but it's like, it seems like it's very, it helps you reason about stuff, mm -hmm. whether that's concurrency mm -hmm. or, um, or atomicity. Um, but, but yeah, and so, so, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to talk some about the future of React and the effect that React is having on the rest of the world. Um, your React JS training partner Ryan Ryan Florence he said that Angular and React and Ember are soon going to look very yeah. similar, and there are they're all going to be leveraging one way data flow, and they're all going to be focused on components. So I'm wondering. In what ways are these frameworks going to be different? Uh, 
I, I think, I think, uh, yeah. So Ryan, Ryan was right that they're, they're going to be similar in, in a lot of ways. One of the main things that I that I see, or one of the main differences that I see is, you know, I see I see people in you know Angular and Ember camps. They're talking about like, let's do server rendering. Yeah, you know? like that that would be really really cool. Like if we could render on the server side. I worked at Twitter a few years back, and that was a huge reason why we stopped building so much JavaScript, you know, uh, heavy apps on the front end because we wanted to render stuff on the server. Uh, because it would be, you know, then we could serve these sort of web pages to people faster. Anyway, so everybody wants to do server rendering, right? Well, if you go to React, like, they've been doing it already for a very long time. Um, and and every, you know, I mean, you, you even see, you might have seen, like, the React Canvas project, right? Uh, the React Canvas project was a, a huge eye-opener for, for me, at least, because here you have Flipboard. They wanted to do... Some pretty some pretty interesting animation work on the mobile web, right? And when you say animation and mobile web, usually you think, forget it, right? Like that's it's it's just gonna suck, <laughs> right? Um, so Flipboard is like, well, maybe we can, you know, maybe we can build an entirely different um, rendering engine for React uh, that instead of rendering to DOM, it's now rendering to Canvas because. Canvas is actually really fast on mobile, um, and if you browse Flipboard.com now on your on your iPhone 4s or 5s or whatever, you know not a not not the super newest phone. It actually feels really really good. You get these really good animations. Why am I talking about this? Because hmm. I think that React really hit the nail on the head with the layer of abstraction. Right? We talk a lot about abstraction and programming, and we talk about leaky abstractions and how when you build one. You know, you have to be careful because if 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 you're not if you if you're not careful, uh, it's going to leak and and it's going to be it's it's going to be very very difficult to do all of the things that you were able to do uh, with the sort of lower level. Well, I think what React has done is they've they've really hit this nail on the head with the right level of abstraction. The the fact that a third party, completely unaffiliated with Facebook, can go and create their entire rendering engine, you know, unbeknownst to Facebook for rendering to Canvas on mobile. Um, to me, I think is testament of that fact. Um, it- yeah, and when I look at this like larger uh, ecosystem of different JavaScript frameworks, and I see all these other frameworks like kind of fast following yeah. React, it makes me just think that well, okay, if you're building a green, and you talk about this a lot about the greenfield versus brownfield stuff, like if you're building a greenfield yeah. app, you should probably use React if you can, and if you can't, then it like well, okay, fine, you can keep using your uh, you know, use keep using Angular, keep using Ember or whatever. Um, but the fact that those things are building out feature sets that look like React is uh, probably an indication that React is doing something from a first principles standpoint that's just like so uh, so appealing that um, that it's worth just having. So um, so React is is an open source project and it's very decisively led by Facebook. Yep. But you do not work at Facebook. You you are kind of an insider outsider person because you work so heavily on React, but you're not employed by Facebook. And I know you've worked some with the Facebook team, but I'm very curious about about this experience of kind of being an insider outsider. Yeah, so it's it's interesting, right? Um, it, it's interesting. Facebook has actually hired quite a few of my friends. <laughs> uh, 
um, who, you know, who we've, who we've worked with on React stuff. Um, and, you know, we, we, we go and we have lunch with them and we talk to them about the React stuff. I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, a matter of, um, you know, just kind of what you want to be doing with your, with your career. Um, and, and that's, you know, the decision that Ryan and I have made is that at least for now, um, we think that it's just, just kind of a little more interesting to us to be doing what we're doing right now. Um, but it, it does give us a unique kind of perspective, right? Because we get to, we get to work on, uh, you know, we get to work on the router, we get to do the training and stuff. Um, and I feel like we do get to bring a little bit more of sort of the community aspect um, back to the the core React contributors. I mean, th- not to say that they are not in touch at all. They're they're incredibly in touch and responsive and and very active. You know, in in public forums like Twitter and Facebook, obviously, um, and and responding to you know GitHub and responding to users' concerns. Um, but I, I I think that we can sort of make a good testing bed for for some of the concepts. Uh, for example, there's this there's this thing that uh, this feature actually of React that, you know, is not actually very well documented um, and it's not, you know, very, very well, it's not talked about, or it's not documented at all actually in the official React documentation, but it's something that, you know, browsing around uh, the React source, I noticed one day and I was like, hey, maybe we could use this in the router and the feature is called context. Uh, and basically the feature, what it is, is it's, you know, the ability to define Sort of a, a variable at, at, at a higher at a high level in your component, and then it sort of automatically cascades down as props to you know deeply nested components. So you don't have to pass in explicitly the props at every level, you know, in every single render method. Um, and I thought, hey, maybe this could be useful in the router, right? Because we have these links that need to be able to trigger navigation from arbitrarily, you know, deeply nested portions of your hierarchy of your view hierarchy. So what if these links just sort of had this router thing passed down automatically that they knew about in context? Um, and so we started using it. And um, you know, as we were using it, it was great for the use cases that we were having. But then we got a whole bunch of feedback on the router project from people who were like, hey, you're using this context thing, and it doesn't actually work the way that we intended. And what about should component update? And anyway, there's kind of a long story, but you can you can find the whole everything on GitHub. But Basically, um, the, the, the idea was, you know, when that feedback sort of trickled back to the React uh, project, and we weren't the only ones, I'm sure, that were giving them this feedback, uh, others as well, but, you know, they decided to actually make a change in 0, uh, 0.14 uh, release of React to make uh, context, uh, just to sort of change the way that it worked. So now instead of being um, owner-based, which is, you know, the component that rendered you, it was now parent-based. So in other words, you know, the component that is your parent in the, in the DOM hierarchy um, context is going to be passed, or passed down by a parents instead of owners. So anyway, it was, it was kind of this technicality, but, but it was just kind of an example, I think, of how, you know, us kind of poking at the edges of React um, and others kind of helped to provide some sort of real-world feedback um, to, to the sort of Facebook team where they're like, hey, you know, communities kind of having problems with using this feature this way, maybe it should instead work like this. Um, so that's been really... Yeah, it sounds, like a very, it sounds like a very synergistic relationship, the fact that you guys are kind of like boots on the ground people and Facebook is Facebook. Um, but 
with that in mind, I am curious, what is React.js training? What are you guys doing? Yeah, so, uh, so I'm glad you asked. So we, um, so, you know, about six months ago, Ryan and I were at, well, gosh, it's longer than that now. I think it was back in January. We were at the React Conf uh, at Facebook, the first conference that they did, um, and they invited us to speak. And we, you know, they were very gracious. And we, we showed up, we spoke, and then people, you know, various people kind of who were attending the conference would sort of ask us at, you know, the, at dinner or whatever, say, hey, you know, are you guys actually doing any training or consulting? Because, you know, we've got a team over here of, you know, maybe we're at uh, Netflix or Yahoo or somewhere, and we've got a team and we want to kind of get the rest of our team up to speed on this stuff, and you guys seem to know what you're doing. So you want to come and do that? And we were both full-time elsewhere uh, at that time. And, uh, but, you know, enough people started saying things and we got some encouragement from some friends who said, hey, you know, there's a real need for this. Maybe you guys should actually do this. Um, at the same time, we, you know, the router was really taking off. Um, the router has uh, formed the backbone for a lot of people's applications in the React community. And we were kind of drowning in, you know, support requests and issues and pull requests and things um, and so we kind of saw this opportunity. So maybe we could train people on React, and you know, and maybe we could make enough doing that full time that we could sort of donate the in between times when we're not on site doing some training to maintaining our open source work. Um, if you've if you've talked to anybody, and I'm sure, of course, you have, Jeff, but you know, when you talk to people who have main, who maintain large open source projects. Um, it's it, it gets to a point where you can't really just do it in your spare time. Uh, if you want to if you want to do a great job, you know you you have to spend a significant amount of time and effort and 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 really money on maintaining this software for for the good of the community. Or build an entire company if you're like cloud. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so so you know we it, it had kind of gotten that point to that point for us at least that we thought you know. We really believe in the router. We believe we're doing we're doing some things there that uh, that people haven't done ever before in client side routers. We really want to give this thing a chance to sort of grow and and succeed. We really believe in the React technology. We believe in the team at Facebook that's building React, um, and and you know the just the the fact that they've open sourced it and shared it with the world. I think is 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 phenomenal. So maybe we. So what is your training process like? Like when, when, you, when you get up there on the podium, and, or I don't know how you do it, in front of a bunch of people uh, who have varying levels of experience, what is your, what is your training process so, like? Um, so uh, Joe Eames, actually, I, I don't know if you know him. He's a, one of the organizers of NGConf. He actually wrote a blog article last week uh, kind of talking about the way that we do our, kind of talking in detail about the way that we do this. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. Um, but, sure. But, great. But the idea was, um, the idea is basically that, that we get up and we kind of switch off. We'll we'll do like a lecture for maybe forty five minutes to an hour, um, and then we actually have code, actual code that you download your machine, you install it, and you run it. And now you've got you know exercises in the browser. So some of the exercises we do are like cones style programming, right? Where you've got just ten failing unit tests, and now you know, you have to go through one by one and make them pass. Um, and we cover all sorts of topics. We cover, you know, we talk about flux. We talk about data flow. We talk about animation. We talk about 
um, you know, principles, the shift from imperative to declarative programming. Um, we talk about, you know, when to use props versus state. Uh, we talk about, you know, rendering optimizations and, and performance and things like that. Um, so we, we talk about testing. We talk about, you know, project structure, good component structure, building reusable components. Um, so we, we talk about a lot, a lot of different things um, in the training. And we've actually developed enough material now that we, we offer two courses. So we've got a fundamentals course, which is kind of like the here, you know, how and why of React. And then the advanced course, which is just kind of like, you know, some advanced topics that we've, we've uh, sort of discovered, uh, you know, just in our experience with React. We're actually doing one, uh, if I can make a short little shout out, we're doing one uh, course next week on Monday and Tuesday in New York City at Tumblr. We're doing our advanced course and we still have some tickets available for that. So uh, we can put a link. To, ah, to I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I'd appreciate that. There are some debates that I've heard about uh, around React and, and web development more generally, and maybe you have some commentary on this. Like, as I've been researching this topic, my brother told me about this debate between higher-order components and mix-ins, and I didn't completely mm. understand what he was talking about, but could you describe that debate? Mm. Yeah, so, um, so I think the root of the debate between you know, higher-order components and mix-ins is, is basically this idea that uh, you know, React 0.13 and, and previous versions had this method called create class. Um, and create class um, basically creates a, it does just what it says. It creates a class that you can now use um, to, to, you know, to, to, to render components to the page. Um, and uh, they had, you know, they have, they have this, this idea in, in the create class uh, API that you could use these things called mixins and mixins are basically just plain objects um, that you can use to sort of override behavior um, well when you know when uh, es6 or I guess it's es 2015 now uh, started gaining popularity in particular uh, the Babel project I think really brought it to light and made it usable for most of us in the industry to actually uh, you know, actually use it in our production code. Uh, when that started really gaining popularity, you know, the creators of React looked around and said, "Well, why do we have our own, you know, our own object model? That's not really what we set out to create. You know, the the thing that we really want to focus on is is the view layer and helping people to do the view layer really, really well. So, uh, so let's how about let's let's experiment just using. ES6 classes because the ES6 specification actually has, you know, classes. It's it's a little bit um, it's a little bit uh, I, I guess I don't want to say underspecified, but you you just don't have all of the features with ES6 classes that you had in Create Class. Um, and one of those features is mixins, right? There's no specification for mixins in ES6 classes, so. Um, so when you start looking around and you okay, so how am I gonna you know use my old my old create class code that that use mixins? Well, how do I get that same behavior uh, if I want to try and use these ES6 classes? Um, and I think that I think that the ES6 classes are are a great move um, because they you know we it's actually easy to to have misbehaving mixins. It's easy to have mixins that. Um, that are not very explicit about what they do. So I could I could basically just grab a bag of methods, 
somewhere else and I could mix it into my component and now all of a sudden my component is behaving weirdly. You know, it's kind of like uh, kind of like if you've ever done, you know, Ruby code or something and you 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 just require a file somewhere and now all of a sudden your your code behaves slightly differently. Um it's it's a very sort of indirect way of programming. Um whereas React sort of favors this very explicit uh model of you know, I can take a look at my component class, and I and I know exactly what it what it what it's doing. Um, so, so 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 you're saying mix-ins are kind of black boxy. Exactly. Yeah. It's. It, I mean, I I still personally believe that there are, are a few good use cases for them, but you can also do really bad things with them. Um, and so this movement towards using ES6 classes, I think, is a positive thing. Um, overall, I think in general, though, we just sort of have to figure out how to uh, use higher order components to do all of the things that we used to do with mixins. Um, the nice thing about higher order components is it's just like a higher order function. You know, a higher order function is is basically just a function that calls another function. Um, and so, if I'm using a higher order component, I'm basically give it props, um, and then it passes. You know, it may or may not pass those props down to down to its child components, but it's the same idea as kind of a higher order function. Um, but that basically makes it, it, it makes it a lot more explicit to me to see what's going on. I see now instead of you rendering, a, you know, a table view or something that might mix in some mix in, which if I'm saying render a table view, I have no idea what it's mixing in. Um, now right. I render the higher order component that, that I possibly created or somebody else, and I say it's going to render a table view. And so now I have... I have a much clearer picture. It's much more direct for me as a programmer to see here is what the component hierarchy looks like, and and so I can you know sort of debug the the React lifecycle methods a lot more easily and, and stuff like that. Right. So this other debate that I've come across is the debate about web components being yeah. uh, potentially conflicting with React JS, or uh, I'm not sure. I couldn't exactly parse that debate either. But can you yeah. can you define that? That debate as well, the web components versus React.js debate, or maybe it's not even mutually exclusive. If you just describe well, so, it to me. So, so I'm kind of a passionate guy, Jeff, and I think you just pushed one of my buttons. Excellent. So uh, I'm going to try and use some. <laughs> I'm going to try <laughs> and use some restraint here because uh, it just seems like. Uh, it, so we've had we've had talks about uh, you know I've had numerous talks about about lots of people doing you know doing web components. Um, web components, I think, set out to solve. The problem of uh, the problem, the problem of scope, I think, is what they set out to solve. Right. So, so the fact that you know, I've got you know this these these um, you know CSS rules that are just sort of you know living in the entire document, or this JavaScript code that you know is you know these JavaScript variables that are you know exposed to the entire document, like. There should be a way to scope that better, right? So if I had, if I had a web component which requires browser support, by the way, if I had a web component, I could uh, limit the scope of, uh, of those CSS selectors, or I could limit the scope, you know, in which that JavaScript actually runs, um, and sort of limit the scope of of you know the, the HTML, I, I guess. Um, but I, I think, in large part, it is uh, it's been a failure. It's been a failure for a couple of reasons. One is uh, it, it's going to require all of the browsers to to get on board. Um, it's a, it's an initiative that's been largely pushed by Google. 
hasn't really been picked up uh, very well by uh, the other browser vendors. Um, and so, you know, Chrome has support for it, but, you know, for the Shadow DOM and um, hardly anybody else does. Um, but I think that the larger issue is that it's, 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 it's not a good model for encapsulation, which is slightly different than, than scope. Um, you'll notice that, you know, if you look at the web components uh, specification, there, there are a few things like, um, you know, the, the shadow piercing selector in CSS, right? So essentially what, you know, what we said when we set out to create web components was that we were going to have a limited scope and now we have to introduce a, a selector into CSS that is able to completely violate that constraint uh, whenever we think it's more convenient to, to, to not have scope, right? So, so are um, these, so, like, so, these lack back compatibility? Uh, sorry, what, uh, what lacks backward compatibility? Web components? Uh, yeah, right. So if I, if, if, if I use a, I, I need I need a, a browser that supports them in order to use them. Like if uh, the the Polymer project, for example, if I need uh, if I I need to be able to use Shadow DOM, uh, I need a browser that supports Shadow DOM. So is this um, is this some weird proxy war between Google and Facebook, or is that misreading the situation? I, no, I, th- I think that's a misread. I I, I think it, it, I, in the most part, for the most part, uh, the 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 React approach is is very pragmatic, right? I mean that. The React approach is, I mean, these people are using React to build Facebook.com, right? React, Facebook.com is completely written in React, right? So, so, so React was built by people who were shipping software using React. Um, the web components uh, initiative, I think, is largely backed by people who are sort of tinkering and experimenting and, and sort of figuring out, well, you know, could this work? Could this solve some problem that somebody might have, uh, um, but they're not writing Gmail using web components. You know, they're not writing Google Maps using web components. It's just sort of it's sort of like this thing that came out of the labs at Google um, that you know has sort of been you know made it into some standards committees with which they have lots of influence. But it's not really but it was never a very pragmatic choice. Yeah, exactly. It was it was never like. You know, and if you and if you look traditionally at at the history of the web, I mean, look at things like you know XML HTTP request. Where did that come from? Well, that came from Microsoft, who needed to be able to make a request, you know, an HTTP request to their server using JavaScript, right? So they just like put it in there. They dog fooded it. They used it, and then everybody else said, "Hey, you know, what? that's a really great idea." And like. Let's do that, and, and let's you know make a make a standard on it. So, I think that's, and, and there are numerous, numerous, numerous other examples of, you know, browser vendors implementing something. Um, it works. It turns out to be a great idea, and so we can now all sort of say yes that we can all agree that this is a good idea, and let's all use this. Right. It's I like think, necessity is the mother of invention, not the other exactly, way around. Exactly. Exactly. We don't need to invent things. To solve problems that you know that might exist. Does you know? the core React team feel the same way that you just articulated about web components? They're much more diplomatic than I. They're much. Oh, <laughs> there's your other <laughs> advantage for not working at Facebook. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, if I did, I'd probably get fired. Um, that, yeah, that they, they. I mean, basically, the way that I see the discussions going in public is um, the web component people will come around and say. 
hey, hey, I can use React with my web components. They'll work together. And the React people are like, yeah, like, like not the React people at Facebook, but just sort of the React community in general is just kind of like, yeah, that's, that's great, but why would I ever need to do that? Um, like, there's, there's just sort of a, 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 I feel like there's a desire from the web component camp to have, you know, React people using web components because I think that will sort of validate the work that they're doing. But uh, again, I, the people who are using React, we're, we're pragmatic. We're shipping software. Like, we're not, um, you know, I'm not going to use something just for the sake of using it. I'm going to use it if, it if it if it gives me if it solves a real problem that I have. If it gives me some real level of benefit. Um, so it so sounds I, I, it sounds like there's not actually going to be like a significant schism here because it sounds like why would people actually adopt web components uh, in in popularity if it's not actually shipping software or I don't know what what what's yeah, is yeah, there I, a significant schism well, or. No, no, I, I think I think uh, I think the web component people are going to keep doing what they're doing. The React people are going to keep doing what they're doing. Um, the 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 only chance for web components to succeed uh, is going to be if you know Mozilla and Apple and everybody else who is shipping a, a major browser um, says yes, we are now going to you know support the Shadow DOM and these things that that you guys need in order to to work. Or they're not going to be able to convince them to do that, and everybody's, you know, five or six years from now, somebody at Google is going to pull the plug on web components and take it out of Chrome. Um, I, 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 I don't see, I don't see, you know, another way forward for that. Whereas in the meantime, people are going to be shipping React apps, uh, and they're going to be shipping them on native, and they're going to be shipping them, you know, on mobile using Canvas and on the servers, and it, right. it's just. You know, why would I use something that might have might have full industry support in five years, or I could just use something that works today? Got it. So um, I want to begin to close off. You've been very gracious with your time. Um, so you've spent significant time with the Facebook team talking about the future of React, and we've seen some just incredible technologies continue to come out of Facebook and the open source community uh, associated with Facebook. Um, I mean, we saw Android native yesterday we we knew that was coming but it was you know still really amazing and all all these other things relay um you know the the graphql open sourcing um but so what do you think we're going to see in the future and what would you like to see in the future especially because you're helping to build that future Uh, i i really think that the, the major initiative, uh, the, the major sort of thing that's coming down the pipe in the future is, is React Native. Obviously, it's not coming down the pipe. It's here, but it needs to mature. Um, I think when, when companies start realizing um, that, that React doesn't just, it doesn't just change their software. It changes the way that their companies work together. It changes the way that people in their company get stuff done. Um, every tech company that I know of now, every single one of them, uh, except for maybe Facebook, but maybe even them to some extent, is this three-legged stool, right? You've got the web sort of generalists, then you've got the iOS team, and then you've got the Android team. Um, and, you know, they, 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 I mean, they even, like, they don't, they, they don't, there's not a lot of overlap in skill set there. Um, there's, there's not a lot of overlap in, in, you know, the, the, the types of responsibilities that they have. Um, they want to have feature parity though. 
So, you know, like I was at Twitter for a long time, I said, you know, and, and you know, we would ship something on the web and now we got to ship it on, on iOS and now we've got to ship it on, you know, our Android app as well. Um, and so you've got this pain where, you know, some, some platforms are lagging behind others and you have to, you know, synchronize between these different teams. Um, if these different teams have a language to talk about the work that they're doing, you know, what if an iOS developer and a web developer and an Android developer could actually all go out to lunch together, which, by the way, doesn't actually happen at these companies that I'm talking about because they all work on separate teams, siloed sort of away from one another. But what if they did and they actually had a common language when they went out to lunch to talk about features that they were building, you know, a common, a common component model where they could talk about yeah, you know, the, the implementation uh, at the low level is different, right? The, the, the Android dev, he's, uh, you know, uh, writing to, you know, using the sort of Android SDK. Uh, the iOS dev, she's, you know, using UIKit, and the web dev is using, you know, browsers. But they have a, sort of this higher level where they can talk about how to build components and how to build out features. Um, now, instead of, of having you know, three entirely separate teams in our organization, now we can start building teams around features, uh, you know, product teams, uh, which I think is a much more interesting and much more productive way uh, to, to, to structure a large organization, you know. And, and you see that. You've got, you know, at, at a company like Yahoo, we were just there a couple of weeks ago, you've got the search team, you've got the fantasy sports team, uh, you know, you've got the Tumblr team, right? You've got lots of different teams. And I think the way that, that that we want to organize these these teams is not by skill set, but it's by by features. Um, and then the particular skill set that a developer has on the team, it's like um, it's just like a spe it's like a specialty. Like oh yeah, she's you know she she's uh, you know our our React Native developer and she ships to iOS and he's our React uh, developer and he happens to you know maintain the the Android app. But we're not you know, vastly different animals anymore. We, we all kind of have this common language to, to talk about things. So I, I think that's, and, that's and, and as soon as larger companies really catch on to that vision, uh, they're going to realize that it, it saves them so much just in time, which translates dollars, uh, which means that they're going to be able to ship things, you know, just so much more quickly. And so I, I think that's where the really, really excited work, exciting work is going on in React is uh, in the React Native uh, department. Awesome. Michael Jackson, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it. 